ever wondered if you were born to be a leader? The one that steps up when the party is dying a death and the team morale is on the floor? If that's you, perhaps you're considering the next stage in your career, the chance to step up. But you're not sure where to start. Well, cue this podcast, The Leadership Quest, a place where we share and unveil some of the thinking from the very best leaders out there, including a few who say that this is a mythical unicorn that we aspire to, and it's all nonsense. So subscribe to join us on the journey of discovering these secrets, and pop over to the website leadershipquest.net to find out more. I'm Annie Coops. Welcome to the place to explore new ideas and here's to helping to make more of us the best leaders that we can be. Welcome to episode six of the Leadership Quest. This is the final podcast in the series of six with more to be released in the new year. In this episode, I was really lucky to be referred to Nicholas Bradbury for an interview by both Karen Linus and Mike Chitty, and it was a complete joy. Please listen and enjoy as much as I enjoyed the conversation. It seems fitting that this conversation, which talks about love, self-compassion and our ability to empathise and love others as part of leadership, is the one that's released just before Christmas. I'll be back in the new year with a new series of six podcasts. Hope you've enjoyed this six so far and see you soon. Hello, Nicholas. It's nice to Hello. be it's nice to be chatting to you today. Could you tell me a little bit about um, who you are and where you are today, maybe? Do you mean where I am physically or where yeah. I am in life? I like to help the listeners to locate where we are when we're chatting. You and I are having a remote conversation, aren't we? So I'm sat in my study at home today. Whereabouts are you? I'm on the sofa in my study down here in Oxford. Are you? That sounds very lovely. And I've just got tickets for Winter's Tale with in the Kenneth Banner production with Dench at the local cinema in Oxford tonight so I'm excited about that. Oh that sounds absolutely marvellous. Well I tonight I'm going to the York Minster NHS carol service this evening, the 41st carol Great. service so that will be nice too. Well I was brought up by going to the carol service in York Minster on Christmas Eve. Were you? Because I'm a certain age. Right. And the lovely lights and Christmas trees on in York Station, which is a beautiful station. Walk up to the Minster. It was a it was when Christmas began for me as a small child. That's a very lovely picture in my head right now. So tell us a little bit about you. The reason that I'm talking to you is in one of my earlier podcasts. In fact, two of my earlier podcasts. Um, we had Karen Linus and Mike Chitty, who both recommended strongly speaking to you about leadership. So tell me a little bit about you. So my life, I'm 70, and my life's been, I think, a little bit more curvaceous, if that's a good word, uh, than many lives, because I was brought up in a musical family in Yorkshire and went off to be a chorister in Christchurch, Oxford. So I had an experience of the arts and of kind of religious experience in some depth 
Uh, he did an bit of the fact that my mother was into drama and my father was quite a well-known music critic. He was the music critic of the Yorkshire Post for almost 50 years. Gosh. So we, um, 40 anyway, a, a good stretch. And so we had music coming out of our ears. We had all, all the records that you could get in those days. And so I had a very rich artistic experience and that gave me a sense of the depth of things. Um, and then later after school, I went to New Guinea for a year and did VSO. And that gave me a sense of multiple perspectives as I was, got my, got my sense, sense to this very, very different culture of New Guinea. And then I spent five years at Oxford growing up really and pretending to study theology because I wanted to be a Church of England priest. Right. Um, and while I was doing that, after I got my theological degree, I was very fortunate to spend six months in Switzerland at the Institut Ecumenique in, on, near Geneva, part of the University of Geneva, the World Council Churches Study Centre, where I spent six months sitting at the feet of an eminent Hindu scholar, a very devout Hindu, who arrived not being very impressed with Christians and left being even less impressed. <laughs> but it had a huge effect on me and... and um, actually gave my children uh, Indian names and so forth, and really changed my perspective about the, the depth of experience you need to find if you're going to really enter into something that, that touches your entire life, your, your body, your heart, your gut, your head, and combines them all. And against the experience that I have with her, all my kind of very cerebral theological study at Oxford all seemed very, very effete. And then I plunged myself in really for 15 years into the inner city, into troubled areas, brutalized environments, very deprived of lots and lots of poverty, lots of addiction, uh, prostitution, alcoholism, vagrancy, homelessness. And there I kind of did a lot of community work as a priest um, and soaked to myself in, in, the, in the culture. And in amongst this, I spent three years actually um, converted to Roman Catholicism and lived with the Jesuits in New York City, where I had a completely different experience, which I have not start on now. But it was a very rich experience uh, of, of community work and, and study in New York City. And then I came back because I didn't want to be a Jesuit after all. Actually, you have to give up sex to be a Jesuit. And I, I couldn't cope with that. <laughs> yeah, really. So I came back and I was vicar of Tottenham for the next six years in a parish of 25,000 people, very multicultural kind of a parish. And meanwhile, I was doing all this, I went on studying. So even when I was at Tottenham, I did a further degree in how the church could be an agency of, of health. Uh, if you like to use the church's world, the church talks about salvation, but how's that? What's the payoff? What's the health in terms of human flourishing, human well-being? What? What? So I worked very hard at that, and we worked hard to make the church community, which grew from about twenty to about two hundred while I was there, uh, into a sort of agency of health, and we worked with a lot of other agencies. And particularly, by the way, with health visitors. And I note from the paper this week that they're really having trouble finding health visitors, and that's yeah. such. A scandal of the cuts, but we'd better not to make this a political blog, I suppose. And then I kept on studying, so I went off to teach in a theological college, what's called pastoral studies, pastoral theology, and then I went back into parish life. But meanwhile, I trained at the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations in psychodynamic 
consultation to individuals, groups and organisations. And I started doing that a lot. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I started doing freelance work for the health think tank, the King's Fund. And we got on very well. And in 2002, I left the church as a full time practitioner and spent spent the rest of my life since 2002, uh, 10 years as a senior fellow at the King's Fund in their leadership department. And then when Carolina started the NHS Leadership Academy, I went there in January 2013 and worked as head of system leadership, but also as head of, of midwifery, nursing and midwifery leadership, actually, because it was just before the Francis report and Karen as she very nicely said, I want a safe pair of hands to get a leadership programme through for 10,000 nurses that we'd nurses and midwives that we'd had some money for from the Prime Minister, no less. So I, I got onto that and then went on to the systems leadership with our intersect programme for people from local and, and lo, uh, central government, the third sector, the health service, social care and, um, and so forth, integrating the leadership programmes. I stopped that a couple of years ago. Now I run my own company called Humanum to develop the human. Um, and I do work up in the Northwest and I do consultations and leadership programs and coaching. Sorry, that was probably that, far too long an no, answer. That was, that was really interesting. What um, my observation is, I'm sat here, um, I'm not that many years behind you. I am a little bit behind you. What a full life you've led so far. You've done many, many, many things, interesting things. Well, it's true. And I've also, one thing I didn't mention is that I've got a PhD in a French philosopher because I'm a, not, really, not at all known in Britain. And, um, and I'm a Francophile. So I've learned a bit about how the French do leadership, which is an interesting perspective. I don't mm. know if you're watching Spiral, which is a really good uh, whodunit set in Paris which has a very good grasp of the socio-politico-economic realities of deprived Paris and, and gang culture and so forth. I really recommend it. Spiral, so there. It's called, it's called Spiral. It's just finished its series seven. Mm, I might look out for that. Mm. So you've done lots of different things and obviously it led you eventually towards the King's Fund and Health and um, the Leadership Academy. And... I guess you will have formed a view, pulling all of those strings together, about what leadership is to you. So is that what you, shall I talk a bit about that? Yeah, talk a little bit about that. So you better shut me up when you want me to stop, like they do on the Radio 4, otherwise I'll just go prattling on. I won't do the, John Humphreys though. <laughs> please don't. So the, the clue is in the title of my company, Humanum, which is Latin for human, Humanum, to develop the human. My very strong sense and experience is that to develop the leader is to develop the human being who is that leader. And there are no shortcuts. An individual has to face into themselves. They have to really be open to discovering their blind spots. They have to know what it's like to be on the receiving end of them. They have to know what people say about them when they leave the room and they have to cultivate an ear to make sure that they know that. So it's about, it, it's quite a, if you want to do it properly, it's quite an involved process because you have to ask yourself, how did I become who I am? Where was I, my place in the family, my early experiences, my schooling, my teachers, the key influences on me will have shaped me. 
and they'll have shaped me very positively and made me give me all the good things that I've got, the amount of confidence I've got, the amount of generosity and love in my heart. But I'll also have some bruising. A lot of people in health and healthcare are actually helping personalities, which boiled down means that because of their early life experiences, they actually are compensating for love they didn't get or for something they didn't get in early life. And in a way, they want to pay back. The, the clue is, if you have a serious case of a helping personality, once by your sort of 40s, you don't get enough thanks for having going out and helping people. You burn out and you get resentful and bitter because you're actually what, what you've done by becoming in the healthcare profession is you've met this, de, this deprived need. And so you can do you can do a lot of damage on the way if you get promoted because you've got a kind of canker in there, a kind of bitterness that you're all operating at an unconscious level. But if, on the other hand, you do what I'm talking about now, which is your development, if you, if you look at your story and, and find out more about it and go, okay, so I'm a bit of a helping personality. Yes, it does meet a need in me. Once you've spotted it, you burst the bubble. It's become conscious and you can make it work to good effect because it can increase your skill. It can increase your insight and perception. And the truly important thing is then you can set about finding, finding an authentic compassion for yourself because it's only when we root all we are and all we do in compassion for ourselves that we will actually be able to find compassion for others. Otherwise, we're compensating and deep down really meeting our own needs. So a leader has to face into their blind spots. They have to be helped to do that. They have to understand, open up to what they don't know that they don't know. A lot of leaders are a bit like tennis players playing with forehand because they've never heard of backhand, so they can't use it. But you can't win tennis matches without backhand. And leaders can't lead unless they discover some of the things that they, that they don't know that they don't know. They may not listen really empathically. They may be forming ideas and thoughts in their own mind that they're going to come straight back with rather than listening deeply. So the key characteristics of a really formed leader are the characteristics of deep self-knowledge, compassion for self, the capacity for empathy, the ironing out of the bruising which you've inherited in your life that makes you, limits your generosity, uh, fires you into spontaneous triggered anger or resentment or envy or jealousy. You've got to face into all that unconscious stuff. And once you've done that, you've got the self-knowledge base to really operate from a position of, I'm going to use the word, of love, love for others. And that's what the world needs and that's what organisations need. I'll say one more thing. It's the absolute essential with leadership development is, is learning to, from the basis of what I've said so far, is learning to have to be in all your human relationships with skill prioritizing human relationships above everything. It doesn't take any more time to meet somebody first as a human being and then as a staff nurse or a doctor or somebody in role. You can meet them as a human being first. You can understand this is somebody who's subject to the human condition, who's going to have all the foibles and all the conditioning of 14 billion years of the evolution that's got 
uh, all of us to the place we are. And this individual who didn't know their grandparents, didn't know their, uh, sorry, couldn't choose their grandparents, couldn't choose their parents, couldn't choose their socioeconomic environment where they were brought up or their schooling or their teachers. You know, an awful lot of who we are is beyond our control. But, but the, the lead who welcomes a person for all that they are who understands that to know all is to forgive all, who encourages, who, who makes space, who listens, that's what the leader that we want. And we all have to do it because we have to lead ourselves. Okay, so what you're saying definitely resonates with me. And um, one of the questions that I asked Mike was, um, I was very privileged in the early 2000s, you and I might have crossed over in this time, actually, to attend a leadership program at the King's Fund. It was a two-year program for nurses and I absolutely loved it. And I would say it was probably instrumental in making me into the person that I am today. And we did some of that work, I think, that you're talking about. Um, but what I don't get, really, is whether the branding of leadership development is merely a brand whether it's a way of selling something to people and actually what happened to me was that I just went in as a person who came out having gone through some processes and came out as a slightly better person or did I go in as a latent leader and come out as a leader at the end why do we have to label personal development in the leadership way so by the way, it, that was probably the Johnson & Johnson executive, National Executive Learning Leadership. I, I did two of those programmes. I was involved in that programme for four years from 2003, 4, 5, 6, something like that. So we I suspect we missed each other. But I completely agree with you. Based on what I said earlier about to develop the leader is to develop the human being who is that leader personal and professional development and leadership development are completely tied in together. I mean, it's true. If I go to private counselling because I've got something to work through, I need a psychotherapist. That's, that's not quite the same thing as leadership development, is it? It's no. about intention. If my, if my intention is to sort of sort out the relationship I had with my parents when I was a teen, that, that, that's, that's personal development in its own right. So it's about context. If, if, if my job is a leader, then the personal development that I need, the personal and professional development I need, is going to be of a leadership flavour. It's going to be a leadership kind. So the programmes at the King's Fund and at the NHS Leadership Academy that I run melded personal, professional leadership together around the tasks that the people who were coming on the programme were doing in their professional life. So it's, it's personal professional development for the, in the service of the, the work of, of health and social care, in service of the well-being and the flourishing of the whole population and all the people that one comes across in the course of work. I, I think that that's a really nice way to think about it. I'd, for me, I think I'd reached the conclusion um, in the conversations that I'd been having that really leadership development was just a version of personal development but what I think you're saying is that that's best done in a context and if the context is someone who's working in health and social care then that's the leadership development context work that needs to be done with that individual. That's quite right I agree with that completely so the work I've been caught up with uh, a lot this year 
is a good case in point because it's it's leadership development, which we both agreed is also personal and professional, uh, for physician associates who are a new entry into the healthcare profession. Perhaps some people listening to this podcast won't have even heard of them. Um, they 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 are often biomedical scientists, uh, graduates, or perhaps pharmacists. That sort of health-related science, who then have um, two years of very intensive medical training. And the difference between, and they can work in other general practice or in, in, in hospitals or wherever, um, community. But the difference between them, say, and junior doctors is, whereas junior doctors go on rotation, health um, physician associates can stay in A&E or orthopedics, wherever they are, and add and provide continuity. And there's a whole range of virtues that they can bring to the profession. They're going to be increasingly important and they're going to be increasingly large numbers of them. But you know what it's like when you have a new entry into profession, the temptation of the system is to spit them out because the nurses say, well, you're not one of us. And the advanced nurse practitioners say, and it's certainly don't want to take over what we're doing. And the doctors say, well, you're not quite one of us either. And so on. So they need leadership. Frankly, they need empowerment. They need empowerment to give them the identity, the sense of self, the robustness, the capacity yeah. to negotiate and uh, to influence the system. And so we're very much, that's really leadership work. Uh, development in service of the context that they're in, that, that, where they need to find this empowerment to influence the system in an optimal way. That's, um, I agree with all of that. Having worked in informatics for a lot of my career, where we were not seen as the same as everybody else, I completely understand the scenario that you're outlining for them as well. The other thing that you've said that's quite interesting that um, chimes with something that Karen said in her podcast was about um, leadership being really about uh, being really relational. And your example of when you meet somebody, irrespective of who you are and who they are, essentially at the start of that, it's two human beings coming together, um, is I think something that chimes with what Karen said. So that means that leadership development work probably has to have a high focus on relationships. It's the absolute top priority. It's, it's very, very much more important than anything else. Because if you've got the if you're you it's including your relationship with yourself you know in that great going back to the religious part of me the 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 great commandment was to love thy neighbor as thyself and you can't love your neighbor better than you love yourself so it starts with finding as i've already said find compassion for yourself as a human being from which you can find compassion for others and the fact is we're all in the same boat in system science there is only one system everything is interdependent on everything else there's feedback loops go around what boris johnson or president trump say now will have feedback loops it'll have consequences every conversation we have throughout the day is 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 influencing an emergent world and what it becomes so every conversation we have matters enormously we have to speak to we have to embody the values that we're passionate about and we care about. And when we do that, it will be authentic if we, if we are truly one with those values. And by the same token, when we're not authentic, when we don't embody or really live out what we claim to believe, people know that. It signals. Truth will out, as Chaucer said. 
So leadership development is absolutely tied in to particular contexts and it's, it's the macro, microcosm of the macrocosm of the whole cosmos. Mm. I remember um, you obviously talking to you brings back memories for me around um, my leadership development at, at the King's Fund. And one of the things that I think you've just been alluding to is authenticity, which is quite a trendy word currently in leadership development, I think. But nevertheless, I've blogged about um, experience that I had, which was when I got feedback about how I was perceived by my co-workers. And essentially, I was perceived as being, you know, somebody who was a bit Teflon. I, I, I never fit, was never phased. They just would give me things to do and I'd say, okay, and go and get on with it. And what that meant was people were phased by me because they thought that I was a little bit of a superwoman. And I never was, ever, ever, and never probably will be. And what I had to learn was to show my real self and I had to and I've got this picture in my head of me being in the first meeting where I realized this was going to happen um, and I, I sort of imagined myself opening my coat and letting people see the real Anne underneath but all of those things for me were about experiments they were about personal experiments and I think leadership development is also experimental how would you feel about that well I what I'm thinking about in what you've said Anne is that um I imagine some of the discoveries that allowed you to, as it were, open your open up a bit, were revelations that you first found for yourself about yourself. So, for example, part of your being superwoman thing, which I know you're denying, but you were probably driven in some way. And it was once you discovered the nature of your drivenness that you were able to get a little bit of distance from it and. Um, I'm just guessing this. I don't know you, no, that's, Anna. That's absolutely true. I was driven. I was a high performer. You know. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Discovering how we are driven, and we all are, but in different ways, is a, is a very important thing. I'm afraid I've forgotten the second thing I was going to go on to from what you'd said. Why don't you come back? I, I, um, I find the whole leadership development thing really interesting um one of the things that other people have been talking to me about i guess is whether some most people seem to believe that leadership as a as a verb a doing thing is real but other people dispute i think that leaders are a thing um and don't use that they, they seem to struggle with labeling people as leaders how do you feel about that to be honest, the I don't, I, I don't mean to disparage what other people, what's very important to other people, but just in my own personal feelings for this is that, that all the verbiage around leadership and the, it is a bit of a semantic argument that goes on in the head. And as I said at the very beginning of this talk, I learned not to do that as when I was doing my Hindu stuff. That the head plays a very tiny part in anything, and these little verbal de- nuances don't matter what matters about leadership is is that leader enabling love in the world or where are they getting in the way of doing that yeah and if they're doing it they're a good leader in a particular context provided what they're doing is related to the context and if they're not they're no bloody good (laughs) so i don't really want to get into when is a leader not a leader or yeah do they get it the moment they have a job or is it something that only goes with a particular role we all have to lead ourselves. We have to lead our families. We're all leaders. I want to leave it like that. That's, and, and I think that, for me, that's, 
that's fine. Um, other people have had, um, and Rose, who you listen to some of the podcasts for, um, have been talking about leadership relating to power. Um, and I think the idea that you can't lead unless you're, you're powerful in one way or another. Well, Nels, um, um, Martin Luther King famously said, I haven't got the exact quote, but he said that um, love without power is anemic and power without love is just uh, horrible, sadistic, destructive. Mm. Um, and so love and power need to be conjoint, absolutely. And the thing about personal power is you have to be able to step into it in order to make the most of your capacity to influence for good. You have to be able to, to, to talk, to, to broadcast your values, to, to negotiate, to persuade. And you can't do that without a good, strong sense of your own personal power. It's very linked to confidence in that way. So, for example, authority is different from power because authority is what is given to you by an organisation um, uh, as your set of tasks are in service of that organisation. But you won't be able to exercise your authority to the full unless you step into your power to use the resources and the possibilities that that authority gives you to implement uh, for the good. Yeah, I think authority and power as two distinct concepts are quite interesting, aren't they? I mean, um, in terms of power, I think I think Ros was talking particularly around community and and social power as a difference from personal power, um, and suggesting that the hierarchy, the social hierarchy that we have, has inherently power in different places, which means that people who are in the places where there aren't power are not able to lever that power and lead in the same way, which I think is slightly different from what you're yeah. saying yeah you're taking me back in my own experience to those 15 years working in in the cities and in very prime areas where a lot of the community work and the work that you need to get on with there is empowering people to do exactly what you've just been describing to take take authority to take power and to enable things to happen that that's that's really that's really essential yeah Ross talks about um, old power and new power. She talks about an emergent power, a new power, which is characterised by things like um, Extinction Rebellion um, type stuff, which is where individuals are taking up yeah. their own personal yeah. power differently, I think. Like Greta Thorberg, I mean, absolutely mm -hmm. wonderful. Thing about, but but I think where this where this links into the sort of current theory of leadership development is the people who talk about the need we have to change from the dominance of the notion of power over, and change the preposition and think more about the possibilities of power with, power mm -hmm. to, power mm -hmm. from, so power for. Um, if you change the preposition, you suddenly get a whole new positive glowing colouring of power which is not got the negative connotations of power over. Do you, do you see what I mean? Completely. I think that's a really lovely way of thinking about it, actually. I'm also very struck by, um, I think you're the first person, might be wrong, to say the word love in any of the podcasts. And I'm surprised Karen didn't say it. She's always th going on about love. I think, I think Karen 
alluded to some of this conversation that we're having, but I don't think she was quite as, um, she didn't vocalise it quite as strongly mm. as you are, I think. She did say to me that you would have a spiritual context around this that would be interesting. Mm. Well, I mean, love, of course, is a joker word, isn't it? Um, it? It can be, you know, pink and fluffy or romantic or all kinds of different sets of connotations around the world love but when i talk about the word love i mean effort agency activity and intention to promote human flourishing and human well-being and human health and it's inherently uh, commutarian it's it's corporate it's not the individual from what i was saying earlier about there's only one system in system science we are all in it together and not so desperately depressing about uh, my life is belonging together, which the social sciences have now understood for getting on for a hundred years and know the answer to, instead of promoting all that in the fields of housing and uh, education and health and justice and the criminal justice system and so on, uh, the last 20 years have seen a rolling back of understanding and a really deafening of ears to what is required and the absolute undermining and diminishment of, of social love. And it's tragic, absolutely tragic. I guess it's, um, it's interesting, I'm just reflecting um, that the time of year that we are in as well, and you know, I always turn my thoughts to, at this time of year, to people who perhaps are less fortunate than I am in terms of having you know, a loving home, family, people around me, and yes, I think you're right. I think if we don't turn ourselves as with our own agency to look to society, then what are we doing? Why, you know, why are we not applying our our own agency? I, I'm using agency, I guess, as a word to represent power mm. um, to society in the way that you're describing. We all have it. Well, I mean, the, the millions of children in, in child poverty. Um, well, why, why isn't that the headline news every day in all the papers? I mean, you know, it, I just can't understand it. I mean, it's true that this, even that isn't quite as perhaps as, no, it is, it's up there with the, the seriousness of the imminent destruction of the planet through the unconscious mechanism of denial because human beings would prefer to sleepwalk into extinction than to do anything about it proactively. Um, and it may already be too late. So they're saying, as we have this interview, they're meeting in a summit in Madrid, which say we've got 12 months at the most to turn it around. It's at the tipping point. But, you know, my daughter's pregnant, and what's it going to be like for her child in 50 years' time? I, I dread to think. So I don't know where we're going with this, because I want to keep optimistic and promote the cause of love. But the fact is, if you like the spirit to mention, Karen might have mentioned, might, might have, not that she and I ever talked about this, but we might talk about the notion of sin. That's to say, wandering from the right path, wandering from the path of love, wandering from the path of care. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the prophets always warned about this and it was always happening, it was always going wrong. It was the orphan and the widow were not being protected and all the prophets proclaimed against it and, and, and got punished duly because they uh, you know nobody likes to hear these messages you become a dead hero 
But the truth goes on century by century, millennium by millennium. Mm. You're either on the side of good and of love and of care, or you're on the side of um, not giving a damn. And I'm afraid that's the situation that's dominating our society at the moment. I think Ros would agree with that, um, Ros, who I interviewed last time. I guess one of the things that I'm challenged by, and uh, so I've got a reasonable number of followers on on Twitter and talk to lots of people, is the notion some people feel almost allergic to the idea that everybody can be a leader. But you're clearly saying that everybody can be, and in fact, I think should be a leader, even if they're only leading themselves to be the best person that they can be. Well, obviously you could have a semantic conversation about the boundaries around leadership. But when my children come for Christmas and they're now in their 30s, they'll have to decide on what we're going to do when and who's going to go for a walk. And these are all micro instances of leadership. For example, leadership, a key skill is influencing and arguing for in a way that takes account of the perspective and needs of everybody else and so on. So I'm just trying to say that leadership happens in family domestic situations every day of the week Mm. it isn't just big companies and serious uh, delegated or positions of authority that require leadership we need to be leaders throughout the day we've got to lead ourselves in what we're going to do next Um, so i can't understand this idea that some people aren't leaders everybody's a leader in their own particular context i i agree with that Um, i've always been interested in in this type of stuff and I've, I've only ever seen it as something that's about being the best for myself anyway that I could be um, in whatever context. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry, I apologise. I, uh, I spoke to Myron as well about um, systems leadership and of course, bearing in mind what you said, that would appear to me then just to be a different context but the principles would be the same. Yes, the, depend, the, the idea that everything is interdependent on everything else and the feedback loops, there's no escape from them, they are going round, is a kind of core idea of, of, of system thinking and it applies to human relationships and everything else. Yeah. So if you were to advise somebody who was fairly early on in their career, um, wherever they were and whatever they were doing, around leadership development what what sort of things would you point them at first well um, forgive me for being having said that i don't want to be picky about language i might not advise them any, in anything i might ask them questions which gave me a sense and help them to get a greater sense of who they were and they want what they wanted and where they were going so leadership in purpose of what i'd want to know what is their vision what are their values what are they trying to promote what do they care about what matters to them and from that discussion i'd try to be a catalyst rather than an advisor to think about what given what they want to do would be their next steps and i'd want to help them to choose options that might develop them but it was very much related to an individual a unique individual and the conversation I was having with them is is that I copped out of no question not really no I think it's complete coincidence but I started a coaching program last week and started exploring listening in different ways and 
and how to ask questions differently. And I think what you've just described for me resonates quite well with the coaching approach, really. Um, well, is- if everybody would start out only asking open questions, short mm-hmm. quest- short, sharp questions that begin with how or what, how, how, how are you going to do that? What's the next step? What are your options? What else could you do? What would it look like if, when this is done? Um, the whole world would be a better place because it, those questions are empowering of others. They help other people think. They create imagination and um, ideas in, for other people to generate for themselves, which are then owned by that person. And the trouble with this advice-giving world we live in is that none of it gets implemented because unless people own something, they won't do it. Who who do you admire and look to in terms of leadership? Well, uh, that's a tricky one. At different times of life, I've admired different people. Obviously, I admire Nelson Mandela like everybody else. I, As a child, I admired Albert Schweitzer, although I think with historical hindsight, even though he had doctorates in theology, philosophy, medicine and music, Um, possibly literature as well and it was a complete polymath Mm. um i think people would possibly raise eyebrows about his approach to his hospital in lamborini and certainly a lot of his ideas but he was very inspiring for me because he was a very successful european who went out who felt that that the best thing to do for him was to go out and form a hospital in africa and he devoted his life to it and came back to Europe to give organ recitals, to create the money that he could continue to continue his work in Africa. But um, so he would be somebody. And then there are lots of people who I admire as leaders who nobody else but me would, as it were, know about. Just teachers and family members and friends that, yeah. that I've got. So I don't have to have big, you know, big names to to admire. One very important thing is that, you know, the King's Fund published a a paper called no no no, no more heroes did, yes. and i completely subscribe to that every leader will be cracked flawed we began this discussion which we're probably ending quite soon we, we we began it with me saying about everybody has to face into their shadow has to discover what's like to be on the receiving end at the end of them and let's face it a lot of people including politicians and powerful people haven't done that journey on the contrary they put a bubble around their ego and inflated it Mm. and um, got away with it they've never been confronted with the reality of their shadow side and who they are Uh, they're dangerous menaces and I'm afraid there are an awful lot of them out there so the stakes are very high when people are leaders but don't have insight don't have self-knowledge and don't have self-awareness and haven't had leadership development. It's a really serious matter uh, because they do a huge amount of damage. Yeah, Karen talked about this a little bit as well. She talked about some people that she admired, but also she acknowledged that they too were inevitably flawed, that we're all flawed, essentially. And it's about how you direct yourself to best effort, I think. I'm really... I love talking to people about all of this and every time I have a conversation I learn a little bit more and you've been the same I think. If you were to point people at some reading about some of the things that you've been talking about have you got any suggestions for them? Well I think one of the most interesting writers on leadership in the last 20 years has been Margaret Wheatley. Mm. She began with her book Leadership and the New Science 
which has had a second edition. But since she wrote that, she's rather done a U-turn and, and, and had new thoughts about leadership. So her, her latest books, she's all, I don't know quite much she's taking back what she wrote in her earlier books. Probably not. But I certainly think Leadership of the New Science by Margaret Wheatley is an absolute classic that's well worth reading because it, it helps you really make the, the mindset shift from command and control, mechanical metaphors, levers and instruments and all this way, you know, it's gone into the language, hasn't it? My organisation yeah. runs like clockwork. Yeah. And underlying that is the idea that we treat human beings as cogs in a machine because then we can control them. It's so-called Taylorian management. And the whole shift to system uh, to system leadership based on human relations incorporates through Margaret Wheatley an awful lot of metaphors from biology and from the physical sciences and uh, actually from quantum physics and field theory and, and all that. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just a very rich... Good, that, that sounds wonderful. One of the things that I've not explored with you, and it passed by me, is you alluded earlier to, you talked about being a Francophile, um, and you talked about the difference in leadership in France, I think. Is there a difference? No. <laughs> not, to, not to the substance of what we've been talking yeah. about. Yeah. So when I was referring to Spiral, I was thinking more, that it's shocking because it's so only because it's so different to see how the prosecutor and the judges and the people, uh, different kinds of civil service, or if they are civil service bureaucrats, have power in France in a way that never happens in England. So it's just the comparing the two systems. And I was praising Spiral for being um, for presenting this in a very clear way. I mean, it's it's a program made for French people but it's in cooperation with bbc4 so it's, it's i'm going to find uh, it yeah. and watch it sorry i'm going to find it and watch it and yeah, see what please. i think we are coming towards the end i think mm-hmm. if you were i and i am literally taking a gamble through conversations and chatting mm. having what i think are interesting conversations with people about leadership who would you interview oh gosh um do you, I suppose you want an answer on that now, don't you, while we're recording? Well, um, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues who are leadership development facilitators um, are just wonderful, wonderful. And um, you could do a lot worse than interview any of them, really. I'm working a lot at the moment with my colleague, Louisa Hardman. She'd be wonderful to interview. But equally, I've done a lot of work with lots of others, but just to take a rather different personality, Eden Charles, Dr. Eden Charles, he'd be another person who I think you'd have a very different and interesting uh, interview with. Thank you. That's really lovely. I think we can come to a close and I'd just like to thank you enormously for spending nearly an hour of your time with me. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful evening at the theatre. Well, um, thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to talk with you and I've enjoyed it. I'm sorry some of my answers are probably a bit long-winded, but hey, that uh, you know, develop human personal development takes a lifetime, doesn't it? So That's, it's all about go. conversation. It's all about learning. It's all about hearing what you've got to say. That's exactly what the podcast is for. So I'm very, very well, grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to the Leadership Quest podcast. Is there something that's holding you back on your leadership journey right now? And do you have some burning questions maybe? Please let me know. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Annie Coops or the website leadershipquest.net.